Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where would you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the clock crows, You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. About a year after Harry and I got married, we went to a camping trip in France. And it was a great joy. We shared great delights, great French delights, the great French weather, great French beaches, and of course the French themselves. But after two weeks camping, we fancied a bit of R&R, back to civilization. And on the way back to Paris, uh, sorry, on the way back, we went through Paris for 24 hours of civilization and luxury. And uh, we saw as many sites as we could, all the big ones, the Louvre, the Sacré-Cœur, uh, Notre Dame. But the highlight, uh, for me anyway, was the Eiffel Tower. And I think it might be because I'm slightly... Uh, scared of heights, not too scared of heights, but a little bit scared of heights that it holds such a fascination for me. So just going up the, the lift is quite terrifying as it sort of uh, shakes around a little bit. Uh, but the first floor, even itself, is amazing. And one of the things about the first floor, it's huge, it's a huge concrete floor, but there is a, um, there's a glass floor in part of it. And of course, what you're going to do is uh, walk over the glass floor. And that's exactly what Harry and I did. You can see right down, 187 feet. Uh, but whereas I crawled uh, and shuddered very nervously, uh, in my mind, I, I anyway, Harriet sort of did cartwheels uh, over the glass. Floor. I don't think she actually did that. <clears throat> but she walked over just enjoying it, enjoying the fun of being held 
uh, by glass, being in, in total safety of the glass, even though she, should, she could see the danger. So we both did it, but she enjoyed it, and I was slightly terrified uh, by it. Now, that, in one sense, is an illustration of uh, two uh, Christian lives. Uh, both of us uh, trusted the glass floor, uh, but one of us tentatively, the other with uh, great joy. And that can be true for the Christian life as well. One person can live the Christian life trusting Christ, but very nervously, very stutteringly, uh, crawling along the floor. Am I really a Christian? Have I really done enough? Did Jesus really save me? But the other joyfully and happily, enjoying the good news. Jesus has saved me. I know it. I know it to be true. What a saviour he is. I know Jesus will never let me go. And just to continue the metaphor, I reckon when it comes uh, to the Christian life, uh, a lot of us are uh, crawling along the glass floor uh, with me. But my aim this morning is that we no longer crawl and stutter, but rather we sing and we dance and we do cartwheels. And you can be the judge whether or not I succeed, but I think this passage, I hope this passage will help us uh, do as much. So we just read the accounts, haven't we, of uh, what I guess we could call the first Lord's Supper. Uh, it was not actually called the Lord's Supper in these verses. It's actually called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover. We see that in verse 17. And that's because the first Lord's Supper started as a celebration of something else. Uh, the people who read about... Uh, uh, Sorry, the people who we read about uh, in this passage, they're all disciples, so they're all, they're all Jewish, and they celebrate Jewish festivals. And one of the great Jewish festivals is the Passover and the subsequent festival of unleavened bread. And, and they celebrate this because 1,500 years before that, they are celebrating uh, the first, uh, sorry, they're celebrating the Passover. It's like it was their Christmas or their Easter, a time of great celebration. You see, they'd had a horrible, horrible life in slavery in Egypt. Uh, They wanted their freedom, and that's exactly what God gave them. He gave them their freedom. He set them free, and he did it through uh, the Passover. In every house, Egyptian or Israelite, death was demanded. And it was a reasonable uh, requirement because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And it should have been a firstborn son, but in God's mercy, he allowed a lamb to die in the place of the firstborn son. All that was needed was a lamb to die and the blood of the lamb to be painted over the doorposts. And so when the angel of the Lord came bringing death to every household, the angel would see the blood on the doorway and he would pass over that household. And and that's exactly uh, what happened to the Israelites and the Egyptians. There was death in every household, uh, but sometimes it was the death of the lamb and the angel of the Lord uh, passed over. And so in his great terror and his great fear and his great distress, the stubborn Pharaoh uh, changed briefly and he set the Israelites free. And so God led the Israelites out of Egypt. He led them through the desert, through the Red Sea. He fed them in the wilderness and then he took them to himself on Mount Sinai. And there he held a a covenant ceremony with them. And some of them, uh, we'll be hearing again later, ate with him and drank with him, and enjoyed being in his presence. So the Jews were saved uh, from slavery to fellowship with God, and to enjoy him, and to worship him, and to lighten him uh, in his presence, to enjoy God as their father, 
as their helper, as their friend. And they were told to celebrate this festival year after year after year. And so that's what they did. And that's what's going on in this story. And now most of us will know that what Jesus is doing here is he's reappropriating this story uh, to himself. He's saying, this rescue is all about me. I am the Passover lamb. We don't see him saying those words, but that is that's exactly what is going on in here. He's saying he's the Passover lamb. Because he rescues us from our sins and brings us to himself, to God himself. And that's what he does through his death on the cross. And what I want us to know and believe and have total confidence in this morning is this. That Jesus' death saves us in totality. Slightly a clumsy word, but uh, I think it's helpful. Jesus' death saves us in totality. That's what I want us to grasp. He has done it. He has saved us. And this morning we'll spend most of our time actually in those verses 26 to 29, but not entirely. We need to see them in the context of the backdrop. And firstly, I want us to see that Jesus is in total control. He's in total control. Did you see the disciples ask Jesus where they should eat? And Jesus says, look, I, I know the guy. Don't worry. It's all arranged. I'm in control. I'm in charge. And he's surprised by nothing. He's about to die. But rather than say, this is my end, this is a day of great tragedy, uh, look what he says in verse 18. He says, my time is at hand. This is my hour. This is the reason I've come. This is my time. Dying is what he came to do. And then, of course, we get the matter of Jesus' betrayal, don't we? And we read about that briefly last week. Judas has planned Jesus' betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. And we see, again, back in 16, just before our reading, that everyone's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. We need to catch him out. But you can't catch Jesus out. You can't surprise him by anything. In fact, it's wonderful to know that uh, you can never catch Jesus out. Your sin never catches Jesus out. And But we see that um, you can't catch Jesus out, uh, although Judas thinks he's being clever. Jesus is in total control. He doesn't just know that he'll be betrayed. He, he knows who will betray him, and he knows when he'll be betrayed as well. So Judas, I, I imagine sort of feigning uh, ignorance, didn't want to look different to the rest of the disciples. He too says, is it I, Rabbi? It can't be me, surely. But Jesus says, you have said it so. As if to say, of course it's you. I know that you know it's you. He's in total control. Nothing surprises him. And then Jesus also knows, of course, that God's promises must be fulfilled. And rather than to avoid God's promises, to see if there's any way that he might still live, he walks consistently with the promises. Again, verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. About 20 years ago, the, the Passion of the Christ came out. I don't know if you watched it. Apparently, I read recently, it was one of the most uh, pirated films of all time, which might surprise you. It surprised me when I heard that. But the film came out and loads of unbelievers watched it. I had two good friends from university, not Christians, who believed it. Hey, sorry, who watched it. They didn't believe it. They watched it. And I said to one of them, do you, so, do you understand why Jesus died now? She said, oh yeah, I really understand. It was a terrible tragedy and he was betrayed. What, what, what a mistake. What a failure. Well, Jesus says, no, my time is at hand. He's in total control. Nothing surprises Jesus. His death didn't surprise Jesus. 
and your sin doesn't surprise Jesus. He deliberately went to the cross for your sin and for my sin. I think we often find this uh, hard to fully own this for ourselves, that he really did deliberately die for me and for you. We think, did Jesus really die for us? Did he really die for me? I know he died, but did he really die for me? I'm such a failure. He, 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 he maybe died for some, but did he really die for me? I'm a mess. I'm useless. I, I repeat the same mistakes again and again. Well, that brings us on to the second uh, point I want to see this morning. Not only should Jesus is in, is in, is he in con- total control, uh, do we not, not only do we see the total con- uh, control of Jesus, we see the total failure of the disciples. There's a big contrast, isn't there? Total control of Jesus, total failure of the disciples. Um, and if we jump ahead to the last uh, bit of the reading, verse 31 to verse 35, we'll see that. We'll come back to the middle bit in a second. So what does Jesus say to his followers and his friends? Verse 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. It's not that they will uh, 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 fall away despite Jesus. They'll fall away because of Jesus. Jesus is the reason they will fall away. They'll deny him, they'll be ashamed of him, and they'll leave him. Now back in chapter 16, Jesus uh, has told his disciples and told us what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So chapter 16, verse 24, you might look at it later. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Following Jesus means denying yourself. But here Jesus tells Peter that Peter won't deny himself. He'll deny Jesus. He doesn't say, if anyone come after me, they must deny me. He says, if anyone comes after me, they must deny themselves. But Peter is going to deny Jesus three times tonight. It's not one slip of the tongue, I misspoke. It's not, you'll be faithful for the next three years, but yeah, you might have a brief wobble, but you'll generally be okay. On the night, he says, I will never betray you. He says, no, no, you will betray me three times this very night. At his time of his biggest zeal... He completely bottles it. Total failure of the disciples. But realising this is such a relief. It's such a relief when we realise we're exactly the same. There's a sense in which this this mirrors what we are like in our walk, doesn't it? Even in our times of, of most zeal, of most enthusiasm, we find ourselves bottling it very, very quickly, very, very soon. Who hasn't distanced themselves from the more challenging sayings of Jesus in public. Oh, I don't really believe that. Oh, I'd want to caveat that quite a lot. Who hasn't bottled it in front of other Christians, not being zealously uh, as uh, Christian as you might want to be, not speaking out Christ at a great opportunity just to make life a little bit more comfortable? Who hasn't done that? I think we often think of ourselves, don't we, as... um, like a car, uh, you look at our car afterwards, see it's got a few scratches and dents on it, don't ask how we got them. But often we think, yeah, we just need a, a bit of paint and a few panels changing. But that's not what we're like, is it? We're, if, if we're a car, we're a car that's been written off. We, need, uh, we, we, we have no value anymore, we, we, we're useless, we need to start again. We need, to, we need a completely new start. And actually, when we think about it, 
we know, don't we? It's not like we just have a few scratches, a few dents here and there. We know we mess up hugely all the time and regularly, don't we? The children, don't we often say, uh, sorry, mum and dad, I won't complain again. I won't argue again. I won't be rude again. I won't snatch again. I won't wind up my brother and sister again. And yet we do it the same afternoon, the same, the same five minutes later. Uh, adults, aren't we exactly the same as well? We resolve to change. And we, we, genu- we genuinely do resolve to change. I don't doubt Peter's uh, integrity or, or his... His, um, his motive when he says, I will not deny you. I, th- I think he thinks he won't. And don't we do the same? I'll never do it again, Lord. I won't make that narky comment again. I know I'm a habit of doing it. I won't do it again. I'll stop getting angry. I'll stop being lazy. I'll stop watching this. I'll stop drinking that. I'll stop seeing this person. I'll start doing this good habit. I will. From now on, I will. We genuinely resolve to change and to do these things. But the reality never matches the resolution, does it? Don't we see the total failure of the disciples in our own lives? Well, the good news is, the really good news, is that if you see, your, if you see Peter in yourself, then you're exactly the sort of person who Jesus came to die for. He came to die for Peter. And he came to die for you too. If you feel like a total failure as a Christian, well, join uh, the club. Peter, the founding member, we're all in it. But Jesus came to die for you too. And now let's turn to probably the most important section uh, of our reading, where we see the power of Jesus' death. The power of Jesus' death. So the Passover tradition was that during the Passover, there'd be a meal, and typically the head of the household, uh, he would host the Passover and part of the meal he would recount the story of how God's people the Israelites were saved from Egypt he would say what would happen and and everyone loves a good story uh, particularly the Jewish people completely identified with it they would say yes this is our story and that role of head of the household is actually what Jesus adopts here uh, with his disciples but rather than recount the story of the exodus he talks about a new Passover He talks about his own death. And as we consider some of the details, we'll see what a wonderful death it is and how powerful his death is. Firstly, uh, implicitly but but clearly here, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Uh, There's no uh, blood of a lamb on a doorpost because no lamb has been killed. But it's not a lamb in our place, it's Jesus' body in our place. And of course he will bleed, won't he? on the cross it will drip from his head it will drip from his hands it will drip from his feet it will drip from his side jesus is the passover lamb secondly jesus says his death is a covenant death it's a covenant death now a covenant at its most basic is a promise it is a promised death a promise of blessing and a promise of relationship. So his death brings blessing and his death brings relationship. And it's the fulfillment of all the uh, old covenant promises. All the promises that have gone before uh, in uh, the Old Testament are now uh, fulfilled in Christ's death. And it's, these, it's his blood that seals this promise. His blood, if you like, is the ink with which the promise is signed. Now, I thought it might be helpful here just to not make sure we're not confused between a, a covenant and a contract. 
So a contract between sort of me and you would be sort of tit for tat. Uh, it's, it's something that protects both of our rights, as it were. So you might pay me to paint your hallway. Uh, so you get a painted hallway and I get a day's wage. And the covenant, uh, sorry, the, the, the contract would define those terms. And it would protect my rights and protect your rights. So if I don't paint the skirting board, you can say, hold on a second, you haven't done your job properly. I'm not going to pay you in full. And equally, uh, if you say at the last minute, actually, I've decided just to do half your wages for the day. I would say, hold on a second, the contract protects me. So a contract is something that protects uh, both our rights. You might say it's an arrangement of equivalence. I protect my rights, you protect your rights. But Jesus doesn't say his blood is the blood of the contract. He says his blood is the blood of the covenant. A covenant isn't about protecting your rights. It's essentially about promising blessing to others. That's what this covenant is doing. It's promising blessing to others. And in this context, Jesus' blood promises every blessing of the Bible. Every promise that has ever been made to God's people is promised through Jesus' covenant blood, poured out for many. Thirdly, Jesus said his blood is poured out for many. And I want us to consider that word uh, many in verse 28. Again, Jesus is picking up an Old Testament language here in Isaiah 53. Jesus foretells that many will be accounted righteous and Jesus will carry the sins of many or the suffering servant will carry the sins of many. Now we should note here that the word many is not the same as the word all. Many does not equal all. If Jesus' blood were shed for all, but not everyone becomes a Christian, it shows there's something defective about the blood. The blood's not working, or at least something is that needed to be added to the blood. If Jesus died for all, but not all are saved, it means more needs to be done than just this blood to be shed. Maybe it's good behavior. Maybe it's faith needs to be added. Then it will be affected. Sorry, then it's effective. But if Jesus' blood is poured out specifically for his people, it means that Jesus' death really does save his people. His blood is effective because all who Jesus died for are saved. You know, there's a one-to-one relationship between who Jesus died for and who is saved. It's the same group. Because when Jesus dies for you, he saves you because his death has real power. It's powerful. It does what it's set out to do. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on the quality of our lives. It's not dependent on the quality of faith. It's not dependent on our sincerity. It's not dependent on our self-discipline. Now, we've seen that, haven't we, with Peter. He's a total mess. He messes up so quickly and so frequently. Jesus' blood, uh, Jesus' death saves us in totality because his blood has real power. His death has real power. And we actually, we all need Jesus' death to save us in totality because we can't bring anything to the table. Now again, you might say, hold on a second, what about our faith then? Surely we do need faith. And of course, there's a sense in which that's true. We are people of faith, but, he, but our faith is only a looking outward. It's a looking outward. It's the claiming of Jesus' death for ourselves. And even that faith flows from Jesus' covenant death. It's what Jesus' death achieves. Our faith is a result of Jesus' death. uh, Again, we see that again in Jesus' promises. The promise of the new covenant, one of those promises, 
uh, with the many promises, is a promise that we will have faith, a promise in a, a transformed heart, a promise of a changed inclination towards God. But this promise obviously only comes through Jesus' death. So listen to uh, Jeremiah 31. This is what uh, God promises. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The new covenant brought in by Jesus' death, by Jesus' blood, is also the thing that gives us faith as well. Jesus' death does it all. Jesus continues. We see the power of Jesus' death because it achieves the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is a promise of the new covenant. It's what Jesus' death achieves. It's why Jesus, back in uh, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew one twenty one, is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's not that Jesus will offer forgiveness. He will save his people from their sins. It's a job and he will do it. It's not an offer of forgiveness. His death will actually achieve the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's not even a joint effort. I'm mindful it's the... Um, the uh, Leeds Marathon and Half Marathon today, and I imagine the winner will be on a podium at the end, uh, much like we see at the Olympics. And I'm always slightly humoured when um, it's a team sport, like the sort of rowing, and you get a rowing eight on a podium. It looks slightly wrong, doesn't it, to have eight people on the top of the podium? But sometimes I think we think of actually uh, of our salvation as like a podium where the gold medal goes to us and Jesus. Jesus for dying, us for having faith in him. But it's exactly not what's going on. Uh, there's no podium uh, talked about in the scriptures, but there is a crown. And who is going to get the crown of glory? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He will get the crown because he has saved us in uh, totality. And finally, we see the power of Jesus' death in the future that awaits us all. So look at verse 29. And here we Jesus say, I will not drink again this fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, the Passover supper isn't really for Jesus. Sure, he's celebrating it here, but he's going to be with his Father in heaven. That's the future for him. But one day there will be a great reunion, and we will join him. And it will be like the greatest party ever, a time of eating, the best food, and celebrating. Again, this is echoes of Exodus. Uh, we talk about the Passover, but uh, the Passover was an end to itself. And, and God didn't just save his people so they could stay in the desert, just free from one thing, but having no real blessing after that. Jesus saves us for one thing, uh, saves us from our sin, and saves us for relationship with him, for enjoyment of him. That's what he does in the Old Testament. Uh, as God's people are rescued from slavery in Egypt. Listen to the, well, not the only high point, one of the high points after their rescue. So uh, Exodus 24, uh, the people uh, go through the desert and they meet God at Sinai. And then there's a, sort of four or five chapters of the relationship will they ensue between God and his people. And this is how it ends for a few of the Israelites. They go up the mountain and it says this, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stain, 
like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What a wonderful picture for those who were slaves, those in chains. Never enough to eat. Physically exhausted daily. Whipped, beaten. To those being in the presence of God. Enjoying him, eating and drinking with their father, with their friend. And this is exactly what our salvation uh, is like as well. And this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 29. And what a party it will be. In the same way that the blood of the covenant, the the blood of the covenant took the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. And then and then they celebrated uh, up on Sinai into God's presence. Well, that is what happened to God's people. That's what uh, Jesus is promising here in verse uh, 29. I tell you, I will not drink of it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, what a party that will be. We all love parties, don't we? What a party that will be. To eat and drink with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's draw everything together. Uh, The main thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus' death saves us in totality. We contribute nothing to our salvation. In fact, it's said that if we are going to contribute something, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Uh, We've seen it, haven't we, that Jesus is in total control. We've seen the total failure of the disciples and we've seen the power of Jesus' death to save us. Now once we realise that it's Jesus' death that saves us in totality, then we can start to really enjoy our salvation. We can really enjoy that we have been saved. It's not a 50-50. We can enjoy that Jesus' death on the cross saved us. It's not a salvation that needs to crawl nervously Along, uh, over a glass floor, is a salvation that does cartwheels, that leaps for joy, that celebrates because of what Christ has done for us and the future that we're heading to. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, let me suggest we respond to this by doing nothing. We do nothing. Well, not quite. We do, we do, we do nothing but rejoice. We do nothing but rejoice. We start looking inwardly at ourselves and start, start asking, what's that question? What, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Because there is nothing that we need to do to save ourselves because Christ has saved us. The act of faith is, as it were, an act of doing nothing but looking to Jesus to do it all, looking to the blood of the covenant. And it's such a relief when we remember that our failings, just mirror the failings of Peter and the disciples uh, for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died and promised uh, to share fellowship with them in eternity. And then, of course, there's the Lord's Supper itself that we're going to celebrate shortly after our next song. We'll pass around the bread and the wine as tokens of Christ's death on the cross and as we do, let's remember, these aren't, we're not going to be holding, holding bargaining chips for our salvation. 
They're not signs that Jesus has got the ball rolling for our salvation as long as we do our part. As long as we believe enough, as long as we're zealous enough, as long as we're keen enough, as long as we stop doing enough bad things. No, the bread and the wine, they are tokens or they're signs of Christ's uh, broken body and shed blood that are our salvation. We're looking at our salvation. We're taking in uh, our salvation. He is giving us our salvation. It's just something that we receive and for which we are very thankful. And so as we eat and drink this morning, let's do so with great joy that Christ's death saves us in totality. Let's pray. Father, you know how prone we are to seek to contribute to our salvation You know how prone we are to doubt our salvation when our contributions aren't enough. Father, forgive us for looking inwardly at all when it comes to our salvation. Would we rather remember that we are saved by the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Help us to renew our joy. Help us to appreciate deeper and more clearly that Jesus' death on the cross truly saved us and give us thankful hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.